0: What happens when we die? Is there life after death? If so, what is that life like? What should we anticipate? These are questions that have plagued the human race from time immemorial. They're questions that never go away. They're questions that always provoke a great deal of interest. Just recently, the largest medical study that has ever been done on life after death was completed. In this study, doctors and scientists spent four years evaluating 2,060 patients from 15 different hospitals in three different nations in order to try to detect and discern, does life continue, is it possible for life to continue after biological death? Their findings led them to conclude that there is evidence that human life continues after biological death and they published those findings in the medical journal called Resuscitation. The interest that people have in this subject is demonstrated by the popularity of books and movies that come out about it. Over the last 15 years there has been, been an explosion of books along the genre of what Tim Challies has identified as heaven tourism, books by people who have purportedly died, gone to heaven and then come back to tell about it. There are some of these books that have set records, for example the most popular book is from 2010 called Heaven is for Real. It's by Todd Burpo who writes about his three year old son who had a near death experience Claims to have gone to heaven a few times and then talks about what happened. He says that in heaven he was given a halo. He saw Jesus riding on a rainbow colored horse. Jesus invited him to come sit on his lap and angels then began to sing to him. The book has sold over 10 million copies. A movie based on the book came out two years ago and to date it has garnered over 180 million dollars in revenue. In the past 10 years over 20 million copies of books like this have been sold. It proves that there's definitely a market for thinking about life beyond the grave, what happens after this life. In one sense that's completely understandable because it is simply a fact that you and I are going to die. You're going to die. The day is going to come when every one of us in this room will breathe our last breath. Then what? What awaits us beyond the grave? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? If so, what are they like? And what would the experience be like when our spirits are separated from our bodies? Well, I must confess that I find absolutely no reason to believe anything in any of the heaven tourism books. And I would encourage you to not put any stock in them either. However, I would encourage you to give careful attention to what the Bible has to say about this subject. Because the Bible says things that are very clear, easy to understand, and the Bible says these things on the authority of the only person who's ever died and come back from the dead and will never die again. Today, in our study of 2 Corinthians, we come to a passage that speaks directly to this question of life after death. So I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to that passage. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll go beginning in verse 1 down through verse 10. If you're using a Bible that's provided for you, that's found on page 966. 966. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll start reading in verse 1. I'll read all the way down through verse 10 for our study. So hear the word of the Lord. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The certainty of life after death gives Christians a cheerful confidence. That's what Paul teaches us in these verses and he does it by making a case about what will happen when we die and then drawing out implications from that fact. And so I want to look at these verses based upon those two points. We want to see in verses 1 through 5 first of all that eternal life will follow this temporary life and then in verses 6 through 10 the fact that We have eternal life after this temporary life causes us to live with cheerful confidence. So in verses 1 through 5, what Paul tells us is that this life is temporary. Three times he uses the phrase or the word tent. You see that? Three times he refers to our life now as a tent. Verse 1, verse 2, and verse 4. Now if you know anything about Paul... That's not to be unexpected. I mean Paul was a tent maker. That was a way that he earned money as he went about doing his apostolic ministry. Acts chapter 18 verses 1 through 3 identifies him as that. So Paul knew about tents. He made them. He repaired them. He understood how they worked. He understood their purpose. If you've ever been camping then you have had some experience with tents too, right? And you know that you put a tent up Not to live in it forever. You put a tent up understanding that the day is going to come when you take it down. And if you've camped like I have, you know that sometimes tents get holes in them. And the rain comes through. And they have seams that rip. And they just wear out. And sometimes their usefulness is over. Because no tent lasts forever. Well that's exactly what our earthly lives are like. They're temporary. Paul contrasts our current earthly life with the future eternal life that awaits us. You see in verse 1, he speaks of our earthly home and he compares it in verse 2 to our heavenly dwelling. In verse 1, our tent is compared to that which will come from our tent, our current temporary bodies, when he compares it to a building a house. It's an interesting mix of metaphors that Paul applies in verse 1 from tent to building to house. He's speaking of the temporary giving way to the eternal. The tent becomes something that is fixed. That which is designed to only be temporary gives way to something that is designed to be permanent. Perhaps Paul has in mind what happened in the Old Testament between the tabernacle and the temple. You'll recall that When Moses led the people out of Egypt into the wilderness, God gave instructions to them on how to build a tabernacle. It was this very elaborate tent. Primarily, its responsibility was to house the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. And that tabernacle traveled with them. They put it up. When they stopped, they took it down when they moved. And when they went into the promised land, the tabernacle was there all through David's Reign as king. But David had a vision from God to build a temple. His son Solomon built the temple. And when the temple was built. That which was temporary in the tabernacle. Gave way to that which was permanent in the temple. And Paul here uses that kind of analogy. To describe what goes on. What will go on with our own bodies in this temporary life. What he's doing here is continuing to explain his Resilience in ministry, arguing that that resilience that he has to continue on as an apostle is based upon his confidence in the future. In chapter 4, verse 14, you remember that he writes <coughs> excuse me," about God raising Jesus from the dead and the certainty that we have from that, knowing that he will raise all of us who are trusting Jesus from the dead as well, so that we might be in the presence of the Lord forever. Now, in the passage that we're looking at, Paul gets more specific in describing what that transformation from this life to the life that is before us, awaiting us, will be like. That transformation will affect our bodies. Christians will be given new bodies on the day of resurrection. In other words, it's not just our souls that will be transformed on that day, but our bodies will. That's what Paul means in verse 2 when he speaks of putting on our heavenly dwelling. And in verse 4 when he talks about what is mortal being swallowed up by life. He's talking about the resurrection bodies that every Christian will receive when Jesus Christ returns to the earth. Now he elaborates this point in Philippians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21. Listen to what he says there. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Brothers and sisters, this life is temporary. It will soon enough give way to a permanent life that Jesus Christ has purchased for us by his life, death, and resurrection from the dead. In that permanent life, our bodies that we have now will be transformed into the same kind of resurrected body that Jesus was given when he was raised from the dead. This Christian understanding, Christian view of the world realizes that our present life with our current bodies is perishing. However, the day is coming when the Lord Jesus will return and all things will be made new, including our bodies. Now this is far different than the popular Roman and Greek way of thinking about our bodies. That, was, that would have been popular in Paul's day. It continues on in many places in the West today. In ancient Greek thought, especially as taught by Plato, the body is just a throwaway container. It's like a prison For the soul, so that once you die, the prison is open and the soul can be released. So we read things like this from Greek philosophers, like the third-century Plotinus, who said that he was ashamed of his body, or like the first-century Stoic Epictetus, who said of himself, "Thou art a poor soul burdened with a corpse," or Seneca. The Roman statesman who was a contemporary with the Apostle Paul who wrote, I am a higher being and born for higher things than to be the slave of my body which I look upon only as a shackle put upon my freedom. And in so detestable habitation dwells the free soul. Brothers and sisters, do you see how the Christian view of the body is different than this Platonic, Roman understanding that the body is somehow evil or at best indifferent and unworthy. God created us body and soul. He loves us body and soul. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He redeemed us body and soul. And when He returns, He will transform us body and soul. This life is temporary. But the day is coming when the temporary will give way to that which is permanent and that will include our bodies. The life we have that is temporary is also anticipatory. It looks forward. Paul's language in our passage underscores this point. He says that we look forward to and we are being prepared for a better life in the future. A life with an eternal dwelling, verse 1 says, in the heavens. A life, as he puts it in verse 4, when our current mortality will be swallowed up by life. And Christians who believe this, who see this, who are thinking rightly about this, have a deep longing for that day, a deep anticipation and desire for that day. Look at verse 2, he says, for in this tent we groan." Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. We look forward to it. We want it. Even our suffering in this present temporary life is designed to help us anticipate the day when we will be transformed. Look at verse 4. He says, For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. That's a different kind of groaning from verse 2. Verse 2, it's a groaning of passionate desire, looking forward to wanting this. Verse 4, it's a groaning when you see what is that should not be and what isn't that you wish were and you're wearied of it and you're suffering for it. Yet even our suffering in this present temporary life contributes to our longing for something more. For something better. It makes us realize that this world really isn't our home. I don't know anybody who has understood this better or explained it more clearly than C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis describes the fact that we have desires as pointing us toward another world. Listen to the way that he puts it in his classic book, Mere Christianity. The Christian says, this is a Christian view, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. So a baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He goes on, If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy, an echo, or a mirage. Brothers and sisters, do you, do you see this? The desires that we have are God given, the desires for good things are right and proper, and yet, Every one of us have desires that cannot be satisfied by anything in this life. What does that tell us? Not that this life is a fraud. Not that the the world is horrible. Not that this is a cosmic joke we're caught up in. No, it tells us we're built for something better. There's something beyond where our desires can be satisfied. Friend, do you understand this? Paul's writing to Christians here. But what he says about longing, it applies to believers and unbelievers alike. No matter what you've heard, grow up, have grown up believing, you were made for something better than what you've experienced so far. That's why you find so much pain and disappointment in this world. Because this world cannot satisfy what is your deepest longing. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that God has put eternity into the hearts of every person. What that means is you, me, everybody, everyone you know has been created by God. And God has so designed each person so that there is an awareness of the beyond. There's an awareness of somehow that something exists beyond this life so there's something that you need something that in your best moments even when you desire that nothing in this world can satisfy not a better wife not a better husband not better children not if only you could get a better education not more money not a better job not better health? Only God. Only God. This truth, this awareness is what dawned on the fifth century church father Augustine and caused him to pray. O oh Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they come to rest in you. I can't help believe that there are restless hearts here this morning, and you have tried any number of things to give you rest. And if you're honest, you have to admit, at best, you have just anesthetized the restlessness. Yet you keep thinking. One more buzz. One more paycheck. One more friendship. One more experience. If only. When in reality, those desires are designed by God to awaken in you what you need in, through, above, beyond everything else. And that is to be rightly related to your creator. You'll never be rightly related to him until you're reconciled to him because you've sinned against him. Sin has separated you. And somehow your sin has to be removed. It has to be dealt with. You'll never be reconciled to God until you come to see that Jesus Christ alone is the one who came to bring people like you and me, sinners, back to God. And He's done it by living a life that God requires of us in complete conformity to God's commandments. And then choosing to step in the place of people who have not conformed to God's commandments and suffering on our behalf so that sin we've committed, sin we're guilty of, sin we must pay for can be taken away. And all who trust in Him will experience that reconciliation, will come to know God through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Have you ever bowed your knee to Jesus? I'm not asking if you joined a church or prayed a prayer or read your Bible. Have you ever bowed your knee to Jesus and found in Jesus everything that God has provided for poor, lost, longing sinners like you and me? Trust Him now. There's no magic to it. You don't have to jump through a hoop from your heart. Acknowledge that what you need is found only in Christ and bow to Christ. Trust Him from your heart. Call on Him. Ask Him to save you. Ask Him to make you right with your Creator because He loves showing mercy to people like you and me. Paul goes on to say in our text that while this life is temporary and anticipatory eternal life is certain. For Christians this longing that we have will one day be fulfilled. Look at verse 1 again. Paul writes here the certainty of what awaits those in Christ. He says if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed that is if we die Which we will. We have a building from God. A house not made with hands. Eternal in the heavens. In other words what he mentions in verse 3. We're not going to be left naked. We're not going to be left disembodied. Our bodies will be resurrected as well. In verse 5 he says that the spirit himself. His presence in the life of Christians. Guarantees that this is true. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The the Spirit indwells every Christian. When you bow to Jesus Christ as Lord, God by His Spirit has already been working in you, and He grants His Spirit to you to indwell you. And that Spirit is given to us as a deposit. A down payment. The word that Paul uses here for guarantee is a word that would often be used for an engagement ring. A promise of more to come. And the Spirit is that for us. So brothers and sisters, as we are indwelt by the Spirit, we need to remember that His presence in our life points us forward to more to come. The day's coming when Jesus will return for us And we will be transformed completely into His likeness. As Christians, we can be assured of this eternal life. We know that eternal life will follow this temporary life because of what happened to Jesus. He lived. He suffered. He died. He was buried. He was raised from the dead never to die again with a new glorified body. And like Him... We will be raised with Him. And the Spirit assures us of this. At the end of chapter 4, Paul puts this in terms of unseen things that are eternal. They're not knowable to our senses. We can't discern them by our senses, but they are true. And part of those unseen things would be heaven. Our future resurrected bodies. The renewal of all things. Forgiveness of sins. Recognizing, thinking about those unseen things helps us to live life to the utmost now. Knowing that this life is temporary, limited, and will soon pass away. Well, because all of this is true, eternal life will follow this temporary life. Paul goes on to draw implications from it in verses 6 through 10. What does this mean? What difference does it make? Look at these verses, verses 6 through 10. Do you see twice in this section, Paul says that we are of good courage. You see that? It's in verse 6. So we are always of good courage. Verse 8, yes, we are of good courage. The word translated for us as good courage simply means cheerful confidence. It says that we can be cheerfully confident, emboldened with a positive attitude. Now what does Paul mean by this? When he speaks of good courage, he doesn't mean brashness. He doesn't mean kind of a flippancy, a a sense of of, uh, invulnerability that causes you to live foolishly. He's not talking about that at all. What he is talking about is the, the, the ability to continue living Christianly Even when it's not easy. To continue standing for Jesus Christ when the opposition comes against you in ways that are threatening. To continue to live with the hope that we have of life eternal when your body begins to fail. When friends let you down. The ability to continue to be joyful even when life is very difficult. Paul tells us that this good courage, this cheerful confidence is steadfast. Do You see that? You see the word always in verse 6? Always of good courage. How do, you, how do you live always with cheerful confidence? By being confident of the life to come. By remembering what is always true. What is never changing. No matter how much your circumstances in this life May change. It's by looking at those unseen things that God has revealed. And knowing that nothing can touch them. Nothing will alter them. No matter what happens. So in verse 6, in the middle of that verse, in verse 7, he says, we live by faith. This is how we live now. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith not by sight. In other words, we know that this life is not as good as it gets. We're away from the Lord. By that, he doesn't mean absolutely. We we have the Lord with us by his Spirit. And through faith, we are aware of his presence. Through faith, we are confident he is with us. But we are not in his immediate presence as one day we will be. So, the presence of Christ to us is mediated by faith. One day, we will be immediately there. One day, faith will become sight. We live right now by faith. That means on the basis of unseen realities, not merely realities we can see. Which means that as Christians, our lives are ordered not by wishful thinking, but by things that God himself has revealed in his word that we cannot perceive With our senses. Sometimes. Faith is erroneously and foolishly described. As a blind leap into the dark. That's not what the Bible means by faith. In Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. It says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. How can you be assured of things you hope in? How can you be convinced of things you've not seen? Because God has revealed them to you in His Word. And so everything that God has said in His Word is true. We can by faith lay hold of and bring those truths into our experience and orient our lives accordingly. Believe what God has said about heaven. About hell. About sin. About forgiveness. About the day of judgment. Because... God has revealed these things and we believe these things we can live in cheerful confidence. Things may not go well for us here in this world but in Christ the day is coming when God will make everything new. He will make everything right. He will completely heal all of our diseases. He will remove all of our pains. He will take away all of our sorrows. He'll wipe away every tear from our eye we will experience no more disappointment forever. How do we know? Because it's been revealed. And we take God at His word and we walk by faith. Paul says that as we live this way, we also long for heaven. In verse 8, look at that. He says, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He's again talking about leaving this mediated presence of the Lord to be in His immediate presence. To be finished with the temporary and fully experiencing the permanent. To enter into eternity. To to live with the new heavens and new earth, which is every believer's true home. What Paul is teaching us here that he elaborates in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that when a Christian dies... He or she is ushered immediately into the presence of the Lord. The body's committed to the ground where it deteriorates, it will return to dust. The spirit goes immediately into the presence of the Lord. In Philippians chapter 2. 1 Verse 23, Paul speaks about his desire to go and be with the Lord, to die and be with the Lord. But that disembodied state, where our spirits are immediately in the presence of the Lord and our bodies have been committed to the ground, that is a temporary, intermediate state that awaits the day when Christ will return in those bodies that have served their purpose in this temporary life, will be reconstituted, transformed in a resurrected fashion, fit for heaven, reunited with our spirits, and we will be completely transformed, ready to live with Jesus Christ forever. That's what Paul has in mind. And that's what Paul says awaits us, that enables us to live by faith now, and with that faith, to long for that day. I mean, don't you ever have those moments? Days? Days? seasons when you just want to go home you you just want to be done with the things that are not the way they're supposed to be if you've never longed for that if that seems like such a foreign concept to you I would encourage you to ask yourself why that is because Paul says here we long to be at home with the Lord What are the things in your life that when you contemplate what is set before us in the Word of God that awaits us as believers, that you value more than that? I mean, do you long to go to heaven, be done with this world, but not really because of these things? What are those things? Family? Friendship, experiences of joy that you have here. Brothers and sisters, pray that God will help us to see what Paul saw that caused him to say, We long, we want to be at home with the Lord. It could be that we've lost that sense of longing because we've lost sight of the unseen things that are eternal. And maybe what we need is for God to bring back more to our thinking. The incredible realities that His Word talks about await us. We need to think about them. We need to believe them. And learn to set our hearts on being at home with the Lord. Verse 9, Paul says, these truths also teach us to live Lives that seek to please the Lord. So he puts it like this So whether we are at home or away, in other words, whether we're living in this temporary world, we die and go to be with the Lord with our spirits, we make it our aim to please Him. We want to please Him, it's our goal. How does that work? It's because we grow in our awareness of everything that Jesus is for us, we grow in our recognition of what God has done for us in Christ. What does it mean to want to please the Lord? I mean, what does please the Lord? Well, when we live in ways that honor Him, we please Him. When we display our love for Him by choices we make, we please Him. When we remember that our love for Him is an echo, a response of His great love for us, And in our desire to love Him, we're not merely sentimental. We're not merely mouthing words, but we take seriously what Jesus said. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And you look at the commandments of Jesus, not as burdensome. Not as something that restricts your freedom and your joy, but as that which guides you in the pathways that please your Lord who has saved you. Brothers and sisters, while it is true that there is nothing that we can do to cause God to love us more, or nothing we can do to cause God to love us less, it is also true that we can live lives that please Him or lives that displease Him. We can make choices. We can entertain and allow habits to go on in our thinking in ways we relate ways we talk that either please the Lord or displease the Lord. It has nothing to do with causing God to love us or provoking God not to love us. He loves us in Christ. But in Christ we are called upon and we have the opportunity to Please the Lord. You displease the Lord when you think in ways or talk in ways or act in ways that are contrary to His revealed will. You displease the Lord when you do not love what He loves. When you treat lightly what He values. And you please the Lord when you see the revelation of what His joy is. What His delight is. And you learn To be joyful and delighted in those same realities. You displease Him when you know His will and disregard it. You please Him when you see His will and you commit yourself to pursue it. Paul says that as we think rightly about life after death, we will seek to please the Lord. That is... We will learn to love His commandments. We will aim to live in ways that make evident to others that He is our greatest treasure. So I just want to put some questions to you and to me. If you're a husband, are you living in ways toward your wife that please the Lord? Men, if you got a wife, Scripture's clear. What God calls us to do. What pleases Jesus. He set the model for us. He's the pattern. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Are we committed to that? Do we want to be that? Wives. Are you pleasing the Lord in how you relate to your husband? Be submissive to your husband. Respect your husband. As to the Lord. Seeing your devotion to Jesus Christ. Expressed. In the way you treat your husband. Parents. How we deal with our children. See them as inconveniences. As disruptions rather than seeing ourselves as stewards of the opportunity. To bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. and Commit ourselves to that because we know it pleases the Lord. Children. You obey your parents in the Lord because this is right and it pleases Him. Or do you think that obedience is just no big deal? Honor your father and your mother. Do you seek to honor them? It pleases the Lord. Or is that something that you just think is church talk that's no big deal? Paul says when you think rightly about life after death, that you will make it your aim to please the Lord. And then in the last verse, verse 10. He adds an even weightier motivation. We remember the coming judgment. Look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Who's Paul talking about here? We. He's talking about Christians, all Christians have a day of judgment in front of us. We will be judged not in any way that suggests our salvation is at stake. Our salvation was secured at the cross of Jesus Christ. When you trust Christ, everything that He did to accomplish salvation comes to you. It is settled. It is sure. It cannot be removed. It cannot be added to. And you don't have to live your life wondering, am I saved? Am I saved? Is God going to accept me? Are you trusting Christ? If you're trusting Christ, your salvation has been settled. It's not what Paul's talking about here. What he's talking about is that Christians will be called to the judgment seat of Christ to give a full account of the way that we have lived in the tent of this life. Our works will be scrutinized. 1 Corinthians 4.5 says that our motives will be made public our lives will be called to account and we will have to stand before the Lord in the light of that reality on that day we will be publicly exposed by the Lord the judgment will not be to evaluate whether or not we're saved it will be to evaluate our works each one then We'll be given our due on that occasion and just like those in Matthew chapter 25 when Jesus gives a glimpse of this scene, we'll be blown away. Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? When did we ever see you naked and clothe you? When did we ever see you in prison and visit you? We'll be amazed because we'll realize that all of the things that we did in this life that God rewards us for are things that we did by His grace his power and all praise will go to Jesus Christ each one on that occasion each Christian will be given his due Paul elaborates the meaning of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 1 Corinthians 3.12 after reminding the Corinthians that the foundation of their lives is Jesus Christ he's their salvation he goes on to describe that the way we live builds upon that foundation either for good For ill, listen to what he says now. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, different kinds of materials, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. The day because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives he will receive a reward if anyone's work is burned up he will we will suffer loss though he himself will be saved but only as through fire you see he's not talking about salvation being in question for the Christian when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ he's talking about the way we have built on that foundation you can build with precious stones and metals that will survive and will bring glory to God because you made hard choices, you did hard things to please the Lord in this life, or you went your own way and didn't take too seriously at times pleasing the Lord, and it was wood, hay, and stubble. And on that day, on that day, you'll be saved. But on that day, you will suffer loss if you've not taken seriously the call right now to live in ways that please the Lord. Brothers and sisters, have you ever stopped to contemplate that day? Think what it will be like. Are you making choices now that honor Jesus Christ? Do you aim to please Him? Is that even in your thinking when you have options in front of you? Do you ask, What would please the Lord? Do you love what Jesus loves? Do you try to order your life according to what he commands? Do you take him at his word? You know, tonight we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. We do that regularly here, at least monthly. And we will come together as Christians with hearts of thanksgiving, being reminded that Jesus shed his blood to redeem us for God. We'll come because we remember Jesus Christ Himself has provided this ordinance for us for our faith to be strengthened through His grace. We will come because we remember that our Lord and Savior, who died on the cross for our sins, said, Do this. And yet, there are many Christians. Professing Jesus Christ as Lord. Who go months. I dare say for some years. Never keeping this simple commandment. What are the reasons that you're going to offer up to the Lord on that day? What are the things that have been more important in your life. Maybe you have been unwilling to declare yourself a Christian. Under the authority of Jesus Christ. By uniting yourself to a Bible believing church. And so it keeps you. From coming. To eat and drink with the Lord's people in this church ordinance. Maybe it's just spiritual apathy. That has crept in and you've just kind of grown accustomed to living according to your own standards and you've forgotten the standard of your king. I wonder if there are some here today that have gone for months or years allowing patterns of sin to just take hold in your life to such a degree that it just feels normal And inevitable now. And so you've just kind of signed a peace treaty with your sin. And you've figured out ways to live that not completely trying to justify your sin. At least salves your conscience enough. When in reality, if pressed, you'd be able to say, Yes, you know and understand what God says He desires. You know what pleases the Lord. You're just not willing to make those choices, to break those habits, to turn away from those patterns, to continue to fight against those sins that remain in you, even when it seems senseless to do so. Brothers and sisters, if that's you, God has brought us here today under the sound of His Word to remind you of all that Christ has done for you and what he's prepared for you and the life that you're headed toward as you live through this temporary life and today's an opportunity to renew your declaration of war on the sin that remains in you don't be complacent Don't be satisfied to continue living the way you've been living where you see those patterns. Do not aim to please the Lord. But today, call out to God and plead with God to grant to you grace and strength to turn away from those patterns and renew your devotion to Jesus Christ as Lord and come together with us tonight to eat and drink pleading the forgiveness of sins on the basis of what Christ has done for you. Don't go on living half-hearted, Lives in the face of a Savior who did everything necessary to bring you to God. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So for the love of Christ in the power of His Spirit let us turn from sin and give ourselves fully to pleasing Him as we anticipate that day. Well there most certainly is life after death. Jesus has proven it by His life, death, resurrection, ascension into heaven, never to die again. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? If you believe it, then stake your life on it. Orient the way that you make choices now on the basis of these truths God's revealed. If you've never started trusting Jesus before, trust Him now. If you are trusting Him and you discover today through thinking about these things in God's Word that you have allowed patterns of sin to develop, apathy to grow up that has caused you to just kind of melt off into spiritual apathy or indifference then brothers and sisters put it to death today, confess it today, return to Jesus Christ as your wholehearted Lord today and trust Him. Because of what He's done because of the promise of life after death We have every reason to live by faith, with hope, in good courage, in cheerful contentedness, cheerful confidence, now until the day of our final breath. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you for speaking to us clearly. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank You that Jesus died for our sins and He knows our sins and when He hung on the cross He knew us and He was determined to redeem us completely. I pray that today You would speak with a voice that raises the dead. Today I pray You would come and stir Your people. Lord, give us a greater fervor for You. Humble us in the face of our lives we have lived not aiming to please our Lord. And make us a people who are filled with joy and hope and renewed awareness of your Spirit's presence and power. For we pray in Jesus' name.